Turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. In Philippians chapter 4, our text this evening will be verses 4 to 9. Last Wednesday, we went over Ephesians chapter 2, and we were talking about the gospel. We were talking about what it is that God has done for us in Christ Jesus, what grace we have received, what a salvation that we have received, how we need to reflect on that and remember where God has brought us from. In doing so, and as we reflect upon those things and and we seek after those things, that ends up bringing joy to our life. And here in Philippians, you find that the Apostle Paul says in a number of places here uh, to rejoice in the Lord always. This book is known as the book of joy. That's what it's actually referred to as the book of joy. It's known in, in that way. This is a book in which it's, very, it's a small epistle, but it is a book that is, is very emphatic on, on, on not only what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, but the encouragement and strength that He provides in our lives, the outlook that we ought to have, fixing our eyes upon Christ in all of His glory and majesty. It expresses to us as well the, the most important things in life, as, he, as the Apostle Paul recounts, his credentials, if you will, in chapter 3. And he says that all of these things that I ever accomplished in my life, all of the things that I was privileged to know, you can throw anything in there, all of it was counted as a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, he says. And he says in that, In view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. There is so much that the Apostle Paul expresses to us within this small letter. Again, that helps us to focus our minds and to focus our hearts back on what is the most important thing in this life, which is Christ Jesus. In view of everything that Paul ever accomplished in his life, it was counted as a loss in view of him. Now, as he's writing this, please keep in mind, that he is chained to a guard in prison as he is pinning this epistle. You know, one, one guy had actually said, one theologian had said, <clears throat> and it was actually in the context of various kinds of uh, church music and this, that, and the other, and how people make such big deal out of, out of the kind of music, and you, know, you have all that, that controversy between contemporary and traditional and all this sort of thing. He says, if you, can't chain, or if you can't worship God chained to a guard as Paul did, then you have a problem. Even in the worst of circumstances, Paul was praising God and worshiping God and honoring God. And he, he expresses his desire to not only know him, but to know the fellowship of his sufferings. And this really brings a lot of things into perspective for us because everything is not all great as far as life itself and, and no, having no difficulties and all of that. Paul says, I want to know him and the fellowship of his sufferings. He, he uses even stronger language elsewhere about filling up the afflictions that was lacking in Christ. Not that there were any afflictions were lacking there, but that's for another time. But they're even more strong language than what he's using here. The scriptures express to us, and this is important for us to know because of the command that the Apostle Paul is going to give. The scriptures express to us that there will be difficulties in life. This is part of our sanctification. And actually, the Apostle Paul tells the church of Thessalonica about their suffering. He, he says to them that this is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God that you would be counted worthy. He even says to the Philippians, back in Philippians chapter 1, 
Verse 29, and actually, well, let me back up to verse 27 so we see the context of what he's saying. He says, Only conduct, your, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Part of the will of God for the people of God is suffering and trials and tribulations, oppositions, we read Jesus even saying in the Gospel of John that in this life you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Paul says in a number of different places, talking about our suffering, he says all that desire to live godly will suffer persecution. He talks about suffering in Romans chapter 8. He talks about suffering in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, which is a very good text that I, let's just, let me read that for you. As we're setting all of this up here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, you can jot this down. <clears throat> Jumping into verse 15, he says, For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore we do not lose heart. Speaking of all the things that they've been going through. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comprehension. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And he uses similar language in Romans chapter 8 expressing the, the, the value of, of what is to come in Christ versus what we suffer here on this earth that it's not even worthy to be compared. In our time of suffering, in our times of trials, in our times of tribulations, in our times of oppositions, in all of our times of difficulty, what is it that anchors us? Because inevitably what happens, and we see this played out on a number of different, in a number of different ways, we see how it is through the secular world, how people handle situations. What is it that anchors the people of God from losing heart and being in utter despair? We see people talking about in the secular world how they're at the end of the rope and they, you know, that's it. You know, giving up, being done. What's different for the people of God? What is it that anchors you? from moving in that direction. It's interesting that the writer of Hebrews says that Christ Jesus is a sure hope, a steadfast hope, an anchor for the soul. We are anchored in Him, and it's our knowledge of God, our knowledge of the Scripture, that brings that, that peace in our time of trials. It's what we know to be true about God that gives us joy in our time of tribulation and opposition. What comfort that we receive when we, when we immerse ourselves within the Scripture and we see even people like the Apostle Paul who struggles and, and he even says in Romans chapter 7, the things I don't want to do, I do. And the things I do want to do, I don't do. He not only struggled there, he struggled, you know, even in the time in which many people had abandoned him. He says, only Luke is with me. Everyone else has departed. In facing his, his death, he stood firm and he rejoiced in the Lord. In his time of, of praying to the Lord and asking the Lord to remove the thorn in the flesh, what does the Lord say? My grace is sufficient, for my power is perfected in weakness. All of these things are for the people of God to, 
to reminisce on, to reflect upon, to meditate upon, so that we do not lose heart in our trials that we will inevitably go through within this life. And these are important things to remember. We've been reflecting upon the gospel last week. And we were reflecting upon all that God has done for us and the grace that He has granted to us and the love that we have received from Him and the things that keep us going is our knowledge of those things and our knowledge of who He is. Paul's going to go on to speak of these things for us. Paul is a great example of the things that we will endure in this life and how to overcome them and how to maneuver through them. He's actually going to say later in chapter 4, But I rejoice greatly in the Lord that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Now that I speak, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. You know, we use that verse a lot. Many times in the, in the, in the wrong context. The Lord that strengthens us in all circumstances is Christ Jesus Himself, in order that in our times of, of need... We're able to be content. In our times of having prosperity, we learn to be content. In our times of, of trial, we learn to be content. Because we can do all things through Him who strengthens us to do it. Now, in light of all of those things, what does the Apostle Paul say? Looking at his life and all the things that he endured, the things that he's saying here, what then does he command of the church to do and to practice. And that's what we're looking at tonight. What is the, the secret, if you will, of being content where there really is no secret because it's plainly within the Scripture? And it's not so far out of our reach that we can't pursue these things as well in order to have peace in our time of difficulties. So let's look at this passage together here in Philippians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 4 to 9. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> Let us hear what the inspired Word of God expresses to us. Verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. These things you have learned and have received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we give you thanks for this portion of your word and for the encouragement and the comfort that we receive by this portion of your word. Father, we ask that the Spirit of God would apply this passage to us not just to hear it, but that it would move within our hearts to cultivate these very things in our lives. That always we would look to you as for our peace and for our hope and for our joy. And to remember that we always have reason to rejoice in you. Father, bless your word as it goes forth to your people. And may the Spirit of God do a mighty change in us. We love you. Because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. This is a very <clears throat> well-known passage of Scripture. It's one that no doubt we've read over 
no, you know, it is um, a very well-known passage. It is a passage that we need to go back to, a passage that we need to reflect upon and to allow the things that are being said here, that said in this, this portion of God's Word to, to permeate our hearts. Instead of, instead of being resistant to what we hear, or to, to be so familiar with this passage that we don't allow the, the Spirit of God working within us to bring about these things in our lives, let us indeed give our attention here. Let us see what God's Word is saying. There is an amazing thing that is going on here when you begin to consider the, the, the whole scene. Again, you have the Apostle Paul chained to a guard. He's in a dungeon. He's, he's in a Roman prison. Depending on, depending on what theologian you read, some would put... This instance in, in the writing to the Philippians towards the end of his life and when he's getting ready to await his death, there was another time in which he was uh, arrested during his ministry. Some place it at this area as well. But either way, he's in prison, chained to a guard. And he's expressing his love and his adoration uh, for the people and their help and the things that they have tried to do for him and, and the giving that they have, uh, the gift that they have brought to him and all of that. Even in the circumstances that he's in, he's writing about his contentment. That is an amazing thing just to consider from the very beginning. He's being content, chained to a guard in a Roman prison. And yet he's still, in those same moments, expressing his adoration and his love for Christ Jesus his Lord, and even himself rejoicing. He rejoices towards the beginning of Philippians because even though there are people outside that are preaching the gospel out of spite for him, he's rejoicing that Christ is being pray, uh, preached. So in light of all of that, he's writing to the church at Philippi. He's encouraging them. Don't be alarmed at your opponents. These things are from God that come upon you. This is granted to you to endure these things because in our trials and in our tribulations and in our suffering, God is shaping us and He is molding us to bring about an even greater character, a greater godliness in our lives. And that's exactly what He says in Romans chapter 5. We exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been shown to us in Christ. So what then does he say to them? Now, he's already expressed a number of things as we've been talking about, and especially when it comes to the unity that they ought to be having in chapter 2 there, and he uses Christ as the example. He talks about the first priority in his life that ought to be Christ, and that's for every other believer. And then he says these words after he gets done speaking about these two people that need to be at peace with each other. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Now, the amazing thing here, he's talking about what, what we ought to be doing when, when peace is lacking in our lives. And he gives three commands. This is a command that he's giving in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. This is not an indicative uh, statement here. This is not, uh, uh, this would be a good idea kind of a statement. This is a command. This is the, in the imperative by the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi. And he is commanding them, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Have joy always. Never changing. Now, how can they have joy in the midst of opposition, especially when enemies are trying to infiltrate into the church because he gets done, he actually talked about in chapter 3. Um, he says, verse 1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware uh, of the evildoers. Beware of the false circumcision. Now, he is giving them warnings most likely about the Judaizers. So they have opponents that are trying to come in. They're receiving opposition. And he says to them, Rejoice in the Lord always. This is a command. 
How can they do this? We may look at this and we may say, well, that's easier said than done. But look at the Apostle Paul. Chained to a guard in a prison. He's maybe able to receive some visitors. Other than that, that's it. How can he say this? How can he command these things? Because of the very thing that he does within all these epistles, which he wrote from prison. He is commanding the people of God to take their eyes off of their circumstances and to focus it back upon the Lord, the sovereign one, who is the ruler over the kings of the earth. Remember who you serve. Have confidence in the one whom you serve. Have confidence in the one that has brought you out of darkness. And that's the amazing thing, too, that we had actually went over as we were going over the the series on the doctrine of election, that Paul actually begins the epistle with referencing the doctrine of election in order to move into the sanctification area to express that the same God that is that has called you out of darkness, He has began this work in you, He will bring it to completion. This is the same God that is working in your time of suffering and in your time of need. He is actively involved in everything that is going on in order to conform you and to mold you to be who you ought to be in Christ. This is the God who is intimately involved in every aspect of your life. Therefore, have confidence in Him. Have confidence that He knows what He's doing. Have confidence that you know Him to be a good God. There's only one kind of God that exists, and that's only a good God. Remember and reflect upon... This God that has called you, that has bestowed grace upon you, that has granted you eternal life with Him by allowing you to be the recipient of the work of His Son. He is actively working in all things, all things that you endure in this life, whether good, whether bad. And in knowing these things and in knowing these truths and looking back and seeing how the Lord, as we talked about last week, how the Lord has, has bestowed such grace upon us through the salvation that we have in Christ and the work that He's done there, it didn't just stop there. The grace didn't just stop there. This is the same grace that continues with you. And therefore, have, have confidence in Him. Have assurance in Him and rejoice in Him that you know He's at work doing something that's going to bring Him the most glory. And He is actively working in you to help bring you along and providing the strength for you that everything that you need is provided in the Spirit of God whom He has granted to you. Therefore, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. This is a command. This is not a good suggestion. This would be good if you did this. This is rather, this is what you are to do. Because of these things. We don't do that because we tend to forget those things. We focus too much on the problem. We focus too much on the circumstance. Or the pain. Or the trial itself. That's why you have to preach back to yourself the things you know to be true. That's why He's going to tell us as we get on into this passage, whatever is true and whatever is right, whatever is honorable, whatever is lovely, think on these things. And this is more than just giving it a simple thought. This is meditating on it. Because the whole context here of what we're reading is to have peace in your life and you can have peace. That is not beyond anyone. You can have it. If we do what he's telling us to do. Rejoice in him that has called you into his marvelous light. Rejoice in him that sent his only son to die in your place. Rejoice in him that has sent the Holy Spirit of God to gather you and to prepare you. For the great day in which the bridegroom will come. 
Rejoice in Him through all the trials that you've endured in the past that you can look back on and you can see the Lord did right by me. Therefore, this one I'm going in through now, I know the Lord's going to do right by me. He's going to accomplish whatever purpose that He has. But He's going to provide everything that I need. There is nothing that ever occurs within our lives that is separate from the sovereignty of God. There is purpose in everything. Never is it meaningless. Never is it just happenstance and it just, it just happens in our life and it has no other, no other purpose, no other, no other meaning that's, that's never an occurrence that, that, that the people of God ever experience. And we know that because when we look at the people within the Scripture and we see some of the horrendous things that have went on to the people of God here, and we look back throughout the entirety of Scripture, there is nothing that any one of us has ever experienced compared to what they have experienced. And the very things that they did was they trusted in the Lord. None of us were ever thrown to any lions. Speaking of Daniel, we're in a fiery furnace. Speaking of the early church, after the apostles, literally, again, none of us were ever thrown to the lions in the Colosseum or in any other arena. None of us were ever, obviously since we're here, been wrapped in cloth and used as human torches to light an emperor's gardens. None of us here have ever been persecuted to that extent in which our lives were in danger, as many throughout the history of the church were. Speaking of those within the scripture, just with the Apostle Paul, none of us were ever beaten five times, receiving 39 lashes each time. We haven't been shipwrecked. We haven't been beaten with, with rods. We haven't been stoned. We haven't received the slander and the opposition as just the Apostle Paul experienced in his life. This is a man that knew pain. And in the midst of his pain, in the midst of his suffering, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. That's your anchor. That's what brings peace, is remembering whom we serve and rejoicing in him. That's the first command that he gives. The second command that he gives, he says, let your gentle spirit be made known, or excuse me, let your gentle spirit be known to all men, the Lord is near. That's the second thing. <clears throat> your gentleness. It's actually one of the same words used in First Timothy chapter 3, speaking of, the qualifications of, of a bishop, an elder, is gentleness. That idea of not insisting on your own rights, but rather doing the very thing that he talked about earlier in this book, looking out for the interest of others, preferring others above yourself. Let that gentleness, that not a self-centeredness, not a selfishness, but that selflessness be made known to all men. Because the Lord is near. That's actually uh, an even greater motivation, if you will, in order to be gentle and, and uh, letting your gentle spirit be made known, being, being fair and being generous and seeking the welfare of others. Because the Lord is near and the Lord is watching. That is actually a very opposite trait than what we find within the secular world. Because in the secular world, it's always me, me, me. That's one reason why you see so many marriages dissolving over, what do they call it, like uh, irreconcilable differences. Because you're just not, you're not fulfilling me anymore, so we're done. I love what, I, what Alistair Begg had actually said. Alistair Begg said, 
The world will tell you when, you love, when you've lost that love and feeling, it's time for a change. But the Bible says, remember your vows. There's a difference in the Christian life than there is in the secular world. They only desire what they can for themselves. And when they're unfulfilled, they move along to the next. The gentleness of the Christian is to be made known to all. The preference of the believer towards other people is to be made known to all. That humility, that humbleness that is cultivated within our lives as we reflect upon who we are in view of Him. Of what we have received as a result of Him. How dependent that we are in every moment of Him. That doesn't produce high-mindedness. That doesn't produce pride or arrogance. That produces humility. And then that produces a, a desire for us in order to serve others as our Lord has served us. So that's the second command that He gives. Let your gentle spirit be made known to all men. Because the Lord is near. The third be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. That's the third. Be anxious for nothing. Everything? Well, he doesn't give any qualification there. Be anxious for nothing. And actually, Jesus, Jesus had said, the similar words there in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 6. This is what Jesus says. Verse, beginning of verse 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat, what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toll, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the, the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. What's Jesus saying? With the main things in life that we often worry about, don't. Why? Because your Heavenly Father is going to take care of you. That's the very thing that the Apostle Paul is saying here to the Philippian believers who are receiving opposition and all kinds of stuff. Be anxious for nothing. You can't, and this is the amazing part of what Jesus says, you can't add a single hour to your life. So why are you worrying? Your worry isn't going to help you live longer. Worrying about clothing or worrying about food and worrying about drink and all of this sort of thing, worrying about any circumstance or situation. What Jesus says encompasses the whole of life. What Paul is saying is encompassing the whole of life. Be anxious for nothing. Why? Because your sovereign God is the ruler over the realm of mankind. Because your sovereign God is seated upon His throne and He's ruling and reigning and everything is going according to plan. Because your sovereign God is never leaving you or forsaking you, but is intimately involved in every aspect of your life. And He is shaping and molding you with every situation in order to produce in you a greater love for Him and a greater dependence upon Him and a greater joy in Him and a greater hope in what is to come. So be anxious for nothing because whatever has come is being permitted by the hand of God for a purpose. Never a meaningless purpose. 
but always for a divine purpose. Be anxious for nothing but in everything. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And he's telling us the things that are bringing peace. Praying. Be anxious for nothing but pray. Don't don't continue to think about what's going on. Don't continue to stew over what's going on. But give yourself over to prayer. If you you keep dwelling on whatever it is that has has gripped you, then it's only going to fester even more. That's why, as I've shared with you before, I came into church one Sunday, I was angry, still aggravated over something that had happened before, and Paul says, he just looked at me and he automatically knew. You're still stewing on it. And what was that doing to me in that moment? This is the time in which we are to come into the church and to offer the Lord the praise of our lips and to worship Him in spirit and in truth and to rejoice in Him. And I can't stop thinking about what had happened the other day. I could stop, but I wasn't wanting to stop. You know, it's amazing, especially if you get in an argument with someone or you debate someone, you end up going away from the argument and you think, I should have said that. I should have said that there. Then you play the... You replay the whole thing over in your mind again. Well, when they said that, I should have said that. And when they said that, oh, I really should have said that. And you have this whole entire conversation in your head that's a fictional, you know, kind of a conversation, obviously. But somehow that brings some kind of a weird pleasure to us to go over them things and to think on what I should have said. Or what I should have done. You know, the very thing that keeps us from going in those directions and the very thing that keeps us from being anxious about maybe what's coming or whatever is prayer. As John Piper has said, and I've shared it with you before, he, he made this wonderful quote, prayer is our wartime walkie-talkie. It is a time in which you are confessing all of these things to the Lord. Not that you're giving him new information, but being able to express these things to the sovereign one who actually can help and who can provide what you need. You're expressing it all, Lord, this is what's going on in my life. But in the moments that you're doing it, you're not doing it with bitterness and you're not doing it with uh, being irreverent. You're doing it with thanksgiving. Because I know you can help me. Because I know that you're good. Because you've always done well by me. You've always done good. You've shown me your love. Therefore, Lord, let me express my love and thanksgiving to you for all that you've done. But this is going on in my life, too. I need help. I need you to work within within my life. And oftentimes what prayer does is it changes you. You know how nice it is whenever you go to somebody and you just need to unload and you need to vent. And after you being able to, to go to someone who's just willing to listen and you vent to them, you end up feeling better. Well, just amplify that. To an even greater extent that you're doing these very things in a way of thanksgiving, obviously, because remembering who you're talking to, but you're actually talking to the one that's not necessarily going to help give you some kind of a way to solve this. But this is the one who is in control over all of this. And you're pouring out your heart, pouring out your very soul to the God of all the earth. The one who is providing the breath in your lungs in order to express these things to him. And the wonderful thing about prayer, the most amazing thing, well, not just prayer, but prayer and praise and worship, is that the Spirit of God who intercedes on our behalf, sometimes when we're not quite sure what we need to be praying, perfects our prayers before the Lord. We always, constantly, have the Lord who is working in us to bring about such changes in our life, to perfect our prayers and our praise and our worship before Him, always providing, always doing for His people. Always. There's never a time in which He's not. So in everything by prayer and supplication, 
with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. What does that do? Now, this is the indicative part. You have three commands that are given. These are all in the imperative. This is the indicative right here. This is the statement of reality. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, which is an amazing, an amazing thing to think of too. It surpasses comprehension. It surpasses knowledge in the sense of, this makes no sense to me, but I am at peace when probably I shouldn't be, but I am. I have this, this overwhelming just peace and hope and love and gratitude and appreciation. And I can't explain why, but the Lord has worked in me to produce this in me. It's a peace of God. This is a divine peace, as we read in our opening passage, when Jesus says to his disciples, peace I leave with you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. This is a divine peace. Having a peace of heart. A peace in your life, even in the midst of the turmoil. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That peace in which you can't explain at times is what helps to, to guide us and to keep us in the railing, if you will. Puts up the guardrails. It keeps our, our minds focused upon Christ. It keeps the emotions in our hearts and all of that focused upon Christ because Christ is producing all of these things in our life when we do these things. Now that was really the first part of this. How to have peace when it seems as if everything else is, is gone, gone by the wayside. When peace is lacking, this is what you do. Now he's going to go into a few other things to put into practice as well. This is what we do when peace is lacking. And in the moments of of Doing these things as well, there are things in which we need to dwell on. Notice, the things that he says in here do not equal to the things that we often think about. Again, because we often focus on the problem. We focus on, on, on the pain and on the suffering and the trial itself. Paul's saying, don't dwell on those things. You dwell on these things. And here's his list that he gives. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, he says, meaning the, the truthfulness of the Scriptures, the things that are dependable, whatever is honorable, the things that are no, noble or, or worthy of respect, the things that are worthy of you to actually think on. And all of these really, you can be summed up within dwelling on the things of God. Whatever is right, whatever is just. And thinking on the things that are just helps us from keeping our minds focused in on dwelling and taking pleasure in the unjust things that we like so much. Whatever is pure, whatever is holy in relation to God, you dwell on these things. Whatever he says, is lovely. Whatever calls forth love and whatever is of good repute, the things that are morally excellent. All of these things go together. Whatever morally excellent is just. Whatever is just is holy in relation to God because it's emanating from the very nature of God. Whatever is true, whatever is just is going to be true because Truth is, the Lord is truth. Everything that the Lord says is worthy of respect. He says, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, in all of the totality of those, and the totality of the things that we find within Scripture, dwell on these things. And again, this is more than just giving simple thought to them. This is, this is meditating upon these things. 
This is giving deep consideration to these things. In the moments in which my mind is wandering here or focused upon this or my anger is directed over here, let me then dwell on the things that are good and right and allow my mind to be permeated with those things of God. Because these things are right. These things are good. These things are noble. These things are lovely. These things are excellent. And in doing so and dwelling on these things, then that peace of God which surpasses all comprehension is going to guard my heart, my mind in Christ. And he adds to that. The things you have learned and have received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace, there's that word again, the God of peace will be with you. A church that is receiving opposition, no doubt receiving some form of persecution, a church that has internal struggles that are going on here, That's why he's calling them forth to be in unity and to cultivate unity by preferring each other over yourselves. And you do so based upon the work of Christ and what he did. And all of that that's going on, he's saying, in order to have peace in the midst of all of that, dwell on these things. The things that you have learned and received, the things that you've heard, things that you've seen. You know, the Apostle Paul is a great example, a great example to follow. That's why he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's an amazing thing for a person to say. Can any one of us ever say that? Be imitators of me, do what I'm doing, because I'm following Christ. That's that's a big responsibility, isn't it? But yet the Apostle Paul is one who said that. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And he's even saying to them basically the same, the same but in a different way. The things that you have learned from me. The things you receive from me. The things that you heard from me. The things that you've seen in me. Practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. How does he, how does he know that? How can he say that? Because the God of peace is with him in the moments that he's writing this epistle. That he can express all of these amazing truths. These wonderful encouragements. He can express all of these things because he knows and has experienced the peace of God. The peace of God that is with him in the moments again. As he's penning Philippians. As he's penning Colossians and Philemon and Ephesians. Chained to a guard in a Roman dungeon. He knows the peace of God. And he knows how the peace of God is cultivated in our lives. That's why he's saying the things that he is. If you want peace in your life, this is what you do. These are the things that you do. Have confidence in Him. Have assurance in Him in the midst of your trial. In the midst of your pain. Remember the God that called you when you were dead in your trespasses. He made you alive together with His Son. By grace you have been saved. He's raised you up. He's seated you in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come He can show you the surpassing value of, of, his, of his grace. The surpassing riches of His grace. And kindness toward those who are in Christ. That is the great hope that we have. And in the time in which we are on this earth. The opposition is going to come. And the trials are going to come. And the suffering is going to come. That help to cultivate us a greater desire. For what God has, has for us. And in the moments in which we experience those things. We can experience that peace of God. Which will ultimately be ours. To the fullest extent when we enter into heaven. We can have, an, we can have that even now. If we do these things. Instead of dwelling. On whatever is going on in our life. Instead of dwelling on the pain. Instead of dwelling on the people that have hurt us. Focus your eyes. Upon the great king. Who is seated on his cosmic throne. Ruling and reigning. 
in all of his majesty and glory upon the great king that will show you the full manifestation of his kingdom at his appointed time. That in the things that we suffer now will never be experienced when we enter there. Have that hope in you. Because that hope is what helps us to pursue those things of God while we are still here. And to pursue that peace. That encouragement, that strength that keeps pressing us on. Let us not be like the world, dear friends. The world will dwell on things. The world develops bitterness and anger and resentment and malice. But we're not of the world. We are a new creation in Christ Jesus that has been granted something so magnificently great that we can't even comprehend it even now. What God has prepared for us. So focus yourself upon Christ. Rein your thoughts back in and dwell on the good things of God. Don't take pleasure in, in, in the anger and the bitterness. Take pleasure in the fact of knowing Christ Jesus. Take pleasure in His grace. Take pleasure in His word. Because those things will produce peace in our lives in the midst of great difficulties. Let us indeed pursue those things. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, how we thank you. Thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you for all that it teaches us. Thank you for the great encouragement it provides to us. Father, we know that we should never be surprised at the fiery ordeal which will come upon us for the testing of our faith. As if some strange thing happened to us. But let us always rejoice in you, even in the midst of our pain. Not that the pain itself is enjoyable. Not at all. But the outcome of what you produce in us as a result of pain and suffering and trials is something to rejoice in. Because you're bringing us closer to Christ Jesus. Our faith is growing stronger and our love for you grows stronger. If we seek your face in the times in which those trials come. Remind us of these things. Keep us close to you. Bringing back these things to our remembrance. And thank you so much for the spirit of God that you have granted to us that indeed does a mighty work within us. And provides everything that we need in every moment of life. And how we praise you for him. Father, have your way with us. And may our lives reflect the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ who dwells within us. To you be the praise, the glory, and the honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for your attention and you are dismissed.